Well, good morning. It's great to have everybody here. It's always a blessing to see people talking and sharing with the saints, and so that's, that's, that's terrific. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's great to have you here, and I hope um, your hearts are ready to hear what God has for you from his word. Um, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you here at the chapel, and we hope that afterwards you'll go out the exit door to the right. We have a little stand there, and you can get some more information. And most importantly, we offer all kinds of free food right after the service. You know? So come, just eat, laugh, have a good old time with us. And, and any way we can be a uh, help to you, please don't hesitate to ask us. Uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we rejoice over your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't deny the problems and the pressures and the pains around us and within us. But Father, we rejoice in the hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that you are over everything. And that, Father, ultimately it all makes sense one day for us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for that hope we have in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we would pray for those that um, are sick among us, that you'll continue to bring healing to their bodies. Thank you, Lord, for Steve's good progress, Lord, that we've heard concerning his treatments for prostate cancer. And I, I, I pray you'll continue working there. Father, we pray for our ladies at the retreat right now. Um, over this weekend, I pray that you will just continue doing a glorious work in the lives of the ladies. Maybe a time of enrichment and encouragement and challenge and true spiritual growth. So, Father, guide them as they're there. Please bring them safely back to us. Lord, we're excited about the teens going to camp this week. And we pray that you would work, do a good work in their lives and the lives of all the teenagers that will be at the camp. So, Lord, we, we, we again rejoice that we are together as your people, praying that you, through your spirit, would do your good work in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I will sing of your great love forever. 
rejoice when works of wicked men you finally destroy Our Father everlasting. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection.
I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection. That we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son.
Yes, God, this morning, a song like this always makes me, um, you know, we sing a line like, I will look back and see that you are faithful. Man, sometimes I'm so focused on my present problems, and sometimes they're massive, you know, and I know that many of us in this room have massive problems that we're facing on a regular basis, big concerns, big worries, big hurts. But when we sing a line like, I will look back and see that you are faithful, you have always been faithful, Lord. I can take confidence into my future knowing that you have always been faithful. Come what may, God, we understand that there's a beginning and an end to our life. We get that. You know, we're born and then we die. But God, with you, there's so much more. There's eternal life, there's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's freedom. All those things come alongside with you. And yes, I fall asleep in Christ, but then I'm with him forevermore. But that should not deter me from uh, this side of heaven, God. If anything, it should spur me on to spread that news more and more that there is hope. It isn't just uh, this and then that's it. There's you, Lord, and there's you eternally. God, we will continue to look up because there is no one above you. There is nothing above the name of Jesus. Only his name alone is the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords. Lord, may we not rely on men, but rely on you and you alone this morning. God, thank you, though, that you became a man and came down to us to be with us. We don't have to try and scale a mountain to be with you. You came down the mountain to us. God, it's free mercy and grace. Lord, we ask that we would hear that mercy and grace this morning through Pastor Tim as he speaks. So let's be with him now as he speaks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday begins this afternoon, okay, uh, for him, and I'm just so grateful for the ministry that Carmel has had with us for so many years, and uh, amen. You know, the content of songs is honestly what ultimately matters, the truth being proclaimed. To have that done excellently is important and key. But it is the truth that is proclaimed that makes such a difference in our lives. So that's the part of our times in worship and song at our church that I am so very, very grateful for. Um, children can be dismissed for junior church, although they probably already went. Uh, I have uh, two things to say before I get started. Number one is there's a young man in a blue shirt on the aisle over there. Not you, Ken. Okay. <laughs> But uh, can you two stand up real quick and then sit down? And I'll, I'm going to tell who you are. All right. Yeah, you're in the blue shirt. That's good. So Gary Becker is someone. I, Gary, I was thinking as we were singing, I've known you for 40 years. I have a picture of them at my parents' old house standing beside the fireplace with about 40 other people related to a pastoral ministry that we were involved in at our home church. A Really a, a place of preparation for people that were going into ministry. Gary was one of those people. And yesterday, Gary celebrated his retirement from ministry in Allentown, where you've been for how many years? 35. 35, okay. I only remember one year of that. Uh, so thank you for your faithful service to the Lord. Uh, as one pastor to another, it's not always easy, okay? But it is the right thing to do, as we were taught. So we praise God for that. On another note, uh, a beat, that's an ending. 
right? And a beginning of a new phase. And there's another announcement I have that is about new beginnings. So I'm going to ask, uh, it's kind of anticlimactic if I do it this way, but let me ask Blake and Becky to stand up and we'll see if you can guess what happened. Okay, there's light flashing around her. That's not from her teeth, okay? So these guys got, when did you get engaged, by the way? I know you did, but it was yesterday, okay? So congratulations. All right, you guys can, you can sit down. A little excited and confused, okay. <laughs> All right, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three, and we are going to look this morning at verse seven through 13, which is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, of the seven cities that received letters uh, from the Lord through John, uh, the church in Philadelphia is the youngest church. And the city is the youngest city. Um, the name brotherly love comes from the word Philadelphia. All right, If you're from the Philadelphia, which I am, my wife grew right up on the city limits of Philadelphia. We did not call it the city of brotherly love. All right? We called it the city of brotherly shove. Okay? Uh, which is often, if, if you know the uh, athletic fans of Philadelphia, that makes perfect sense to you. Okay, We are pretty obnoxious, to be honest. But there were two brothers that uh, were establishing this city of Philadelphia. The emperor had favor towards one of the brothers, wanted the younger brother to set the older brother aside. But the younger brother refused to do that to his brother because of his love for him. And so the name that was chosen for this city in light of this tension that was present and then this unity expressed by these brothers was it became the city of brotherly love. I did not know that until I was studying this time around. In AD 17, in the middle of Christ's public ministry, this area was hit with the severest of earthquakes. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was absolutely decimated. And as a result, many of the people uh, experienced lingering tremors. Some, some say that this happened for years. And many of the people in Philadelphia decided to live outside of the walls of the city for fear of the collapse of other buildings within the city. It became, it was deemed unsafe at many levels. So that's another unique aspect of the city that comes up in this letter. And then also it is a city that was twice renamed. One time it was named Neo-Caesarea, which is the new city of Caesar. And that was done because after the earthquakes, the emperor gave um, tax breaks uh, to the people of the city so that they would have resources to rebuild the city. Okay, and so that, that idea of a new name to the city in honor of someone is another feature of this letter that we will also see. So let's read through this letter real quickly this morning. Revelation 3 verse 7. It says this, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold firm to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I'm going to give you what I think is the summarized theme of this text. I believe the summarized theme of this text or the encouragement of this text is in the midst of our struggles, we need to cling to the promises of God. As I read through that, you'll find descriptions of what's going on. But at the end of it, it kind of digresses into a list of promises that aim to encourage a church that is struggling. The other notable fact is for this suffering church that was being purified by suffering, there are no condemnations, no critiques of their lives. Because that often is the effect of suffering, isn't it? It has a way of purifying and clarifying our experiences. So I'm going to look through this text. So if the focus is cling to the promises of God, we need to look at the one who's making the promises. We need to look at the recipients of the promises. And then I'm just going to quickly list the promises themselves that are given by God to this church. Let's look first at the promise maker because the promise is only as good as the one who is making it. This text tells us that the promise maker in verse seven is the one who is holy, that is unaffected by contaminants, and he is true. The idea of true here simply means that he is reliable and faithful. What he said he intends to do, and it's also important to note that he has the capacity to fulfill the promises that he is making. It's fascinating also in this letter that the description of Christ that is given here does not derive from chapter one, which it does in all of the other letters. In this case, it derives from the book of Isaiah. The story about someone who's becoming the new prime minister of Israel, the, the former prime minister is being set aside and a, young, and a man named Eliakim is going to become the prime minister of Israel. And when you read through the book of Isaiah, you find this exact description of him as the new prime minister who has the keys, that is he has the authority to direct the affairs of the city and to determine who has the right to citizenship in it. Okay, that's the idea of the keys, the authority to open the door to the city and to welcome people in. Okay, he has the keys. That idea of the keys of David here is the idea he is royalty, he has ultimate power, and the keys indicate authority for access. Okay? Here would be the application, because one of the things we know that was happening in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, in those two churches, we know that there was this, this uh, habit of de-synagoguing people that were out of sync with the status quo in the synagogue. Here and in the church in Smyrna, you'll find that the synagogue is called the synagogue of Satan, which is fascinating, isn't it? It's a 
gathering of alleged people of God, said people of God, that have abandoned the truth of God, therefore are really working on the other side. That's the idea. And what happened in those synagogues, as people came to understand and know the work of Christ and became believers in Christ, they were deemed unfit for the synagogue and they were de-synagogued. Okay, they were put out of the synagogue, therefore they were rejected from an earthly perspective. They would lose influence. Most of the time they would lose financial capacity, which was also true in regards to the suffering that was present under the Roman Empire. So these people are in a very difficult position and it is Christ that comes to them and says, I have the keys. What matters is not that the local Rulers in the synagogue have put you out. Jesus is the one that determined who is actually in his kingdom. Okay, so that's this, this idea of the one that is making the promise. He opens the door and no one can shut because his purposes are irresistible. Okay, so that in the midst of the struggle, what do we tend to think? In the midst of my struggles, I tend to ask the question, is God in control? And as God comes to this suffering church, he wants them to know that the son of God, the savior of the church has the keys. And even though they have been delisted by local synagogue authorities, the one who has the keys has brought them into the kingdom of God. Okay. So we go through this experience, don't we? We feel pressure at times. We feel put on the outside because of convictions and beliefs and, and, and just basic moral principles that we believe matter. Feel like outsiders. Here's what God is saying. If you're on my side, if you have my approval, and if you are faithful to me, you are ultimate insiders, even though for a time you may appear like outsiders. Okay, so that... That is the promise maker, Jesus Christ himself. And the point of it is that Jesus, not the local synagogue ruler, determines who is part of God's family. A promise that we need to cling to. All right, secondly, let's look at the recipients of these promises. And they're described in verse 8 and verse 10. And it's fascinating, I think, how verse 8 starts. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Now, there, there's... One level at which that to me is terrifying, that we are so well known by God. But there's also a sense in which if we are living a faithful life, according to God's principles, striving to do our best to honor and glorify God, there is something about that being known by him that is incredibly comforting and encouraging. And so Jesus says to them, the ones that are going to receive the promises, he says, I know you. I want you to watch what he knows about them. He says, behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have little power. And then here's the reason why he is giving them these promises. He says, you have followed my word and not denied my name. Okay, so the pressure from the synagogue was what? It was to disavow Jesus or the pressure that was coming from Rome to say that Caesar was Lord, to disavow Christ as Lord and call Caesar Lord. That pressure was strong, substantive, and real. They, they experienced that. 
And Jesus can say of these that they have followed my word and have not denied me. Right? And that is the rationale for why they are recipients of these promises of support and encouragement. Okay, so if you're going through a season of being pushed aside, marginalized, because you believe in biblical truth and you are striving to live in a way that honors God, whether it be in a personal relationship or in a public or work relationship, God wants you to know this. He knows what is happening and he is making promises to you because he sees the courage that you are expressing. These people had not caved under the pressure that came against them by the Roman government. And we find here that this, this persecution is clearly forecast as something that is coming upon them. And we know from church history that Rome will do unspeakable things that we've delineated in previous weeks. I'm not going to go into it now. But Rome will do unspeakable things to Christians to put pressure on them in hopes that they will cave and become good citizens of Rome. Okay, and that's always the purpose of the pressure that is coming against you. The pressure aims to reshape you into the image of the culture rather than in the image of the Savior who has died on the cross for you. And I think it's so important that we remember that. So he first says of them that they are courageous. They have followed his word and not denied his name. They receive promises from God. And verse 10 is interesting because I think it's really central to this text. Watch what he says. Because you have kept my word, the word to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. That's fascinating. You have kept my command or my encouragement to endure. And the idea of endure here is a fascinating word that's used a number of times throughout the New Testament. It, it's made up of two words. One is meno, which means to remain. And the other one is hupo or hyper, to hyper remain. Okay, and that is the idea of that word is there is this steadfastness. And I think I remember Doug, Dr. Lovic saying to us in Greek class, the idea of staying power, the capacity to remain in difficult circumstances without compromising one's convictions and beliefs. Okay, so that is the, the reason this church is singled out by God as a recipient of profound promises is that they had this willingness to stay faithful to God under the most awful circumstances. Same word is used in James chapter one, verse two, a text that I hope you are familiar with. It says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, because when your faith is tested, your endurance, your staying power has an opportunity to grow. Okay, so the idea is that as you face pressure and circumstances that cause you to cling tightly to Christ, it creates an opportunity for your staying power, your hyper staying to grow in strength, that you, you begin to mature, you become stronger as you walk faithfully through small challenges, you are more capable of facing bigger challenges. Okay, and that's the idea of this text. You have kept my word to remain when things are difficult. And here's a simple truth I think that we as the Church of Christ in America need to acknowledge. We tend to be very weak. 
we tend to lack substance in our faith. We get dinged a little bit by the world and we tend to wiggle and squirm and we, we contemplate compromising because we have become weak. We have lived in relative freedom for a long time in our country. And I've been telling you, and some, uh, I think Doug and James have, have also been saying this recently, I think that the times are changing in a rather serious way. You know, I, I, I try to exercise on a regular basis. And I can tell you this, my endurance is shameful and embarrassing. All right, I mean, we have a hard time sticking with the diet, right? Depriving ourselves of things that we don't need, let alone facing the pressure of serious rejection or being marginalized. And I think that's an issue that we need to address in the church. I think we need to know that the t there is a serious shift in our culture, particularly in the realm of biblical morality. A serious shift, and I believe serious pressure, is going to come in public organizations. I think there will be critique. I think there will be name calling. I think there will be accusation that aims to silence the next person who desires to stand for truth. I was watching uh, this week a, a, a viral clip that came out. It was of a Judiciary Committee meeting talking about the topic of life or the opposite of that, and that is the termination of infants within the womb or what is commonly known in our culture as abortion. I watched that clip yesterday. I saw a senator named Josh Hawley who asked an expert witness, a, a professor from Berkeley University, if people with the capacity for pregnancy are women. It's a rather obvious question, right? The answer was that the pregnant person, not woman, has value. And the argument moved on from there, that that value caused this person in their answer to be unwilling to address what lies within. His question, does a child at nine months in the womb have any value? The answer was a definitive no. Senator Warren referred disparagingly to so-called crisis pregnancy centers. And Senator Werner sent a letter asking Google to censor search results for crisis centers, calling them fake clinics. Here's what I believe with all my heart. Standing for truth is at, about to get very costly. These are not political issues primarily. They are, being, they are being discussed in the realm of politics, but these are issues of morality. These are basic and fundamental to, to the survival of, survival of culture. And it is sad and horrifying to see the things that are being said. One senator asked an expert witness. Oh, I'm sorry. I told you that already. Senator Josh Hawley asked the expert witness, as I said, if people with the capacity for pregnancy are women. He was then labeled by the expert from Berkeley as transphobic and, in fact, dangerous. 
he was then asked the question from her, if men could give birth. He answered clearly and firmly, no. And he was told that his thinking encouraged violence and he was labeled as dangerous and a threat to life. I want you to think about that. That's where we are today. And here's my convictions. If you are unwilling to be marginalized, criticized, and canceled for the message of the cross and biblical morality, you will not have the capacity to endure, to hyperstand when pressure comes against you. In our age, Christians, and I believe this with all my heart, will be tempted to find sophisticated justification for silence. Please understand how I mean that. I mean, what we pride ourselves on being savvy, on being balanced, right? On not rocking the boat. I'm going to tell you something. When it comes down to issues like what I just mentioned to you and read to you, there is no room for being savvy and balanced. It's time for Christians to say, here's what I believe is true. And if there are consequences for that conviction, so be it. We're called to be people of truth. This church faced severe pressure, de-synagogue, loss of influence, loss of wealth, loss of property, loss of everything. But Jesus could say to them, I know your works. I am fully aware of what you were facing and fully aware of your experiences. So they are the recipients of the promise, people that were willing to stand firm and to stand true for God's truth. I want us then to look at the promises that are given. And it becomes pretty obvious as you read through this text, because as you read through this text, you're gonna see there are numerous promises that are made to this church. So we have this picture of Christ who has the keys, he has ultimate authority, his authority is irresistible. He's speaking to a church that has stood faithful through time. And he is now going to tell them that there are, at the end of the day for them, for the faithful, there are promises that will encourage faithfulness in today's climate and circumstance. And this is what I hope we pick up as we move from this building today, that there are promises that we as Christians can cling to and hold to and remember as we work through the difficult circumstances of a quickly changing world. So what are the promises that are given that encourage us to persevere? And I want to say just at the beginning that these promises each are personal and powerful, and, and there's go I'm going to give you five of them, okay? So this is a, a list, a delineation of things in this text. And what I want you to do as you listen for the next few minutes as I delineate these promises, I, I don't want you to try to remember all five of them, okay? I think this church went back to this letter and reread this letter and reminded themselves in specific circumstances of specific promises that fit the moment that they were in. And I hope that that's the way that this text will speak to you this morning. Verse 8 begins by saying, I know your deeds and I know your weakness. 
So one of the things that's interesting to me is that this list of promises is given to a church that is struggling to remain faithful to God and God fires to them a letter that delineates promises and hope for people that are struggling. The first promise that he gives to them is in verse eight. He says, behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, if you're familiar with how this idea of an open door is used throughout the New Testament, I'm going to say on three or four occasions, it's speaking about missionary enterprise. Okay, so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 will say to the church in Ephesus, I want to come and I want to spend a substantial amount of time with you for your encouragement. But there is a door that is an effectual that is wide open for ministry where he is. Okay, so here's what he says. He said, there is a great door of opportunity that is open and there are many adversaries. So the idea is that God is promising to this church in Philadelphia that there is a, a wide variety of opportunities that God is giving to them. He sees their faithfulness. He sees their clinging to him in suffering and he deems them worthy or fit to be given deeper and greater responsibilities. I think the simple principle is that open or obedience leads to influence. Staying leads to effectiveness, even when the circumstances are incredibly difficult. I think it's interesting in verse eight that he also says to them as they look at the opportunity in front of them, he acknowledges something that's very powerful and hopefully this resonates with you. He says, I know that you have little power. Meaning that their, their capacity as, as people worn down was diminished. But God says to them, you still have power. You have capacity to make a difference, to influence the world around you. So he, he puts before them an open door, says to them, I know you're weak. I know this will be a struggle, but I will come alongside of you. And my spirit will indwell you. And so 1 Corinthians 1 will say something like this. God has not chosen many mighty, many noble, many wise. Instead, God has chosen the weak things of this world to astonish the things that are strong and wise. And so to this church, he says to them, I have set before you an open door. Their staying, their perseverance has led to greater influence, even though the world has marginalized them. So the promise is given to the faithful that there will be opportunities to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Verse nine, I love this verse. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I just want you to think about that for a minute. So the religious establishment in Philadelphia has deemed them unfit, has cast them outside of the synagogue with all of the pain and sorrow that goes with that. And God promised to them this very simple word, ultimate vindication. See, isn't that the question we ask when we're unfairly treated? What we want to know, is there ever a day when God's truth and God's people will prevail, will experience victory? And the answer from this text is a definitive yes. Because God sees what's going on. He is fully aware. And it's why in Romans 12, he says this. 
when you go through times of difficulty, false accusation, don't defend yourself. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what he's reminding them of here. And when that day comes, those that have falsely accused you will know the truth. That you as faithful followers of Jesus Christ have stood on the right side of history and on the right side of truth. The third promise is found in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word of perseverance, that you have stayed true under the most heartless and difficult circumstances, because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. Verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. Hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The idea of that last phrase is this. Do not allow temporary struggles to cause you to cave to get temporal praise. Right? And this is the temptation that we have. This is why we give up biblical truth rather than speaking the truth and allowing God to take care of things. We, we crave being in control of our circumstances. And in the context of this idea of patient endurance, of, of living the way that God wants us to live and leave the results in his hand, he gives us a promise, right? And that is that he will ultimately protect us and keep us from all wrath. And that when he comes, there will be a decisive victory for the people of God that is not owing to their performance but that is owing to the work of their savior, Jesus Christ. Now verse four then says this. It says, the one who overcomes, and that is the one who endures. And it's, it's interesting, if you read through all seven letters, you're gonna find this statement in every one of the seven letters. To the one who overcomes, okay? And the question would be what? Who overcomes what, right? And, and some will argue, and I, I, I think there's some merit to this idea, that the book of Revelation is written to, to support the church of Christ, to encourage them, to give them promises to cling to in the most difficult times until Christ comes. And when Christ comes, there is ultimate victory in his name. The church is never called to take up arms. It's one of the most tragic things of, of church history is when the church has become political and taken up arms, it has always caused difficulty and struggle and pain. God says to the church, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 12, to the one that overcomes in context, I believe it could be a lot of what's present in the book of Revelation. The struggles, the, the trials that are coming, God will protect them from his wrath, chapter 7 tells us very clearly. But there is this promise of a season of trouble and difficulty that is coming to the church. And he wants them to know that they will be absolutely and clearly delivered from all of it. Verse 4 then leads into a new idea. To the one that overcomes... And, 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 and I, I'm just going to say this. If you go back to the book of Hebrews, one of the indications of true faith in Christ is continuance or endurance. So 
if sometimes we're tempted to ask the question, how do I know if I'm a true believer? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. I grew up in the context of a Christian family. All right, so that was a question that occasionally would kind of flood through my mind. Sometimes it would terrorize me. Sometimes it'd be like just seeking clarity. And the answer from the book of Hebrews is that those that continue faithful to Christ can have assurance of faith in Christ. Okay, that that persevering, that enduring, that faithfulness in spite of what's coming up is an indication of true saving faith and relationship with Christ. And in this context, he says, the one that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God. And let me just work on the first half of the verse. And I think the picture here is one of permanence. You remember I told you at the beginning of the discussion of the city in Philadelphia, this was a city beset by earthquakes, tremors, and struggle, particularly at the time that this letter was written. So it is a, a place that is notable for its geological lack of stability. Okay, so the idea of building a temple with pillars in an earthquake-prone area was foolish and terrifying. It's fascinating to me that God speaks to the church, and he says to the individuals in that church, I will make you permanent fixtures. Because what is a pillar? A pillar is a, is, is a, 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 a a column of carved rock that is substantive. And the idea that he brings out here, its aim is to be permanent. Unthinkable in Philadelphia because of the tremors. But in the kingdom of God, God makes a promise to these people. I will make you, even though you've been kicked out of the synagogue, that local gathering, I will make you pillars in the temple of God. I will give you a permanent place, a substantive place in the place where God dwells. Isn't that a beautiful promise? In spite of all of the, the shaking and the struggle and the terror, he gives them a promise in the midst of it. That even though you have been put out of the synagogue, you will never be put out from it again. And notice how he says it. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. What is that saying to the de-synagogued person who has lost everything and sits in virtual squalor? It's a promise from God. Number one, I know, verse eight, I know what you're going through. And one day you will have a permanent place in my house. Well, I love what Jesus says in John 14, which I think is very similar to this. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I think in this, in this text, there is an echo of that. That those who have been discarded by the world, that have been cast aside by the false religious system of their day, the synagogue, will become permanent fixtures in the family of God. So in spite of the, the shaking that you're going through, the struggle that you're facing, this is a truth that you need to cling to, that God has your back and that he is working through those circumstances for your good and for his glory. And one of the promises that you will be in his manifest presence and you will never have to go out of it again. The rest of verse 12 makes a fascinating statement. 
Let's reread this. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. And this now takes you all the way to the end of the book. The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And the idea here is, though they have been rejected by the Roman government, persecuted for their faith in Christ, and put out of the synagogue, what does God say? I will write a new name on you. Now, I don't know that that's justification for tattoos or not. Okay? Just had that thought run through my mind. God is going to put a mark on you. What does that bring in your mind? If I say that God says to the church, I'm going to put a mark on you that says, you are mine, you are a citizen of my kingdom. What else comes to mind in the book of Revelation as you hear that? Mark of the beast. Okay? You have two contrastive symbols here. And this, I'm going to tell you something. This text is definitively my favorite verse in the book of Revelation. Because the pressure will be to accept the acknowledgement of the world, to cave, to receive the mark that indicates loyalty and support and help from the world. And God says, don't take that. Is he leaving you in limbo? Is he leaving the church unprotected? No. It is definitive in this text that for those that have not walked that road and sought that treasure, that temporary treasure, God says, I will write a new name on you. You will bear the mark of a child of God and a citizen of the city of God. Isn't that a beautiful promise? I just, it just strikes me. I will write, I will, I will indicate to the world. And I think that's probably in context how the Jewish synagogue will know that I have loved you. Right? I will make those who rejected you know and confess that they are loved by God. And how's he going to do it? He's going to put a new name on you. And you will never have to go out of that city. And there you will enjoy the manifest, glorious presence of God that is talked about in Revelation 21 and 22. And it is beautiful. Who's it for? It's for those that bear his name. And who have the mark of citizenship in the kingdom of God. Who have not acquiesced to the call of the temporal world. But instead are persevering in struggle, in rejection, in being marginalized. Because they know that there is a better day coming for the children of God. That is beautiful. And that is so deeply encouraging. You know, the city of Philadelphia was renamed to honor the emperor. To honor Emperor Tiberius. Here it's interesting that the people of God are renamed to honor their faithfulness. And that should so deeply humble us. And can I say this? That should so deeply encourage us. To be faithful to the call that God has given to us. A city with a new name to honor a king. People with a new name honored by God. Isn't that awesome? Hebrews 6.10 is one of my favorite verses. Outside of the book of Revelation. Okay? It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the labor and sacrifice that you have made for his name.
because he is true. Remember the description of Jesus at the beginning? He who is holy and true. He sees everything. And as you're struggling, you want to know, does he see this? Is he aware? The definitive answer of this text is he knows everything. He sees you so clearly. He sees your future. He sees a new name written on you in honor and gratitude for your faithfulness. It's not saving. That mark doesn't save you. You're saved because of the work of Christ. Here's my closing uh, thoughts real quick. When you struggle, remember his promises, particularly his personal presence. Verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. And in the gospel of John, he said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The greatest reward Christians have is the promise of his presence now when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And even though the world may marginalize and reject you because of your convictions and your faithfulness to God, you are never rejected by him. That's a promise I need. Secondly, don't antagonize unnecessarily. Folks, there will be enough trouble without us going out and being stupid. Okay? So when I talk about standing for truth... Watch, watch how people do this in difficult circumstances. Watch someone who tacked, who remains as cool and continues to ask his questions with a calm heart. Not attacking. A little mystified by what he's hearing, but speaking truth. We don't ever digress to mockery. We speak truth and it is, it is, it is awfully important that we know how to do that In a careful fashion, but boldly speak truth. Okay, don't be a sophisticated, balanced person who avoids criticism from the world around you. Because you will be a compromiser if you do that. We need to be people of truth. So don't antagonize unnecessarily. On this theme of endurance, which I think is central to the text, I think it is fascinating that Jesus stayed Jesus hyper stayed in the garden of Gethsemane for your saving. He went to his father and said, Father, if there's a way around this, I accept it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And three times he persevered before his father. He hyper stayed for our saving. And ultimately went and stood on Calvary's cross so that Tim Hoff could be forgiven. And so that one day I could have the hope of permanence in his home, in his temple, and the joy of a new name. Unmerited, undeserved, a precious gift of God. My last application of this is this. Don't resent the suffering. Don't resent the struggle. Don't resent the brokenness of the fallen world that you live in. Accept it. Accept it as a child of God. Understanding that, that that pressure that's coming against you first exposes you. It, it, it tells you who you really are. Only tested people know their true character. Only once you've gone through a gauntlet, once you've gone through a season of suffering, can you truly know who you are. 
So allow God to sift you. Allow God to put you in the fire of testing. Receive it. Don't fight it. Knowing that the testing of your faith is producing a stronger, more faithful witness for Christ. That which you think is damaging you is actually strengthening you to be a faithful servant in the kingdom of God. Two churches out of seven receive only praise. And guess what the characteristic of those churches is? They both suffered. And when they suffered, they didn't run and compromise and receive criticism for that. They stayed faithful to God and received his support and his beautiful promises. When God allows you to suffer, he is working in your life to make you more useful for his kingdom. The early church won the admiration of her opponents by their humble resolve and response to suffering. You know, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul, who stood by and watched the clothing of, the martyr, of those doing the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul stood over that clothing and watched Stephen being killed. Watched him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Saw him say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And those watching said, his face looked like the face of an angel. Folks, how do you, how do you get there? And here's the other question. How do you watch that as Saul and not have it deeply change your life? You know what my conviction is? My conviction is Paul never escaped the vision of his, in his mind of a dying man named Stephen, a faithful witness for Christ. He never shook it, but was shaken by it. And because Stephen suffered, persevered, remained, hyperstayed in that circumstance, the trajectory of Paul's life was forever altered. Folks, what does the watching world around you see as they watch you go through seasons of difficulty and struggle, do they see deep trust in Christ that is changing them and that is drawing them to the truth of the gospel? May we be the men, may we be the women, may we be the young people that our world desperately needs to see. People who hyperstay, who have staying power and are faithful in spite of the cost. May God help us. Father, as we close this morning, thank you for this text that so deeply encourages our hearts. Lord, an old hymn has rung through my mind all week. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee.
So Father, as we close our service by singing praises to you, remind us that the aim of your work in our lives is to allow us to endure and to persevere so that those around us may know the truth of Jesus Christ. Bless your word to our hearts and the words of this song as we sing them and go out to make a difference for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name and all God's people said, amen.
Lord, this morning, God, you are greatly to be praised. Lord, we struggle in this world, Lord, not just with um, outside forces coming at us, Lord, decisions um, made politically and made around us, Lord, but we struggle internally with our responses to these things. And God, it's difficult. It's nuanced and difficult. But God, we thank you that your truth remains, that it is there guiding us and leading us. May we be people this week, Lord, who are loving and kind, Lord, that we're not aggressive, Lord, in how we approach people with these concepts and thoughts, but that the truth is boldly spoken with love, Lord, continually. Because Jesus, that's how you approached us. Yes, bold. Yes, aggressive at times with regards to what the truth was, but it was still the truth, Lord. And when you came to this planet, Lord, and came down, you spoke to those who were struggling and hurting. You drew people in who were the greatest sinners, Lord, with your truth. God, may we be very humble in how we approach these things this week, God. Always looking to you, always seeking you, and asking for your guidance and how to respond to a world that is desperate. Looking for truth, looking for hope, looking for purpose, God. May we, this church, be a beacon of hope. A place, Lord, of humble people who have been humbled by their own sin and their own depravity that we have been saved to be able to go out and speak to these people, to say, yes, I'm just like you. I struggle too. I still struggle. Yes, I've been saved and redeemed and forgiven, but I struggle as well. God, we thank you for the, your word this morning. We thank you for Pastor Tim bringing that. We thank you for this time of worship. Be with us now as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.